0: It is lovely to have you. It's good to see you. We're in Genesis chapter 32. It's page 35 of your Pew Bible. So I wonder if you would turn to those, please. As we continue our series in Genesis, Genesis 32, page 35. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanam. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them this is what you are to say to my master esau your servant jacob says i have been staying with laban and have remained there till now i have cattle and donkeys sheep and goats or sheep and goats men servants and maid servants now i am sending this message to my lord that I may find favour in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. We're just going to pause there. It is 25 years since Jacob left his family in Canaan and have moved to Laban. 25 years have gone by. In that time, you remember as he fled, he met God, the stairway to heaven, when he used a a rock as a pillow. He went to his family, to his uncle. He fell in love with the love of his life, Rachel, but married Leah, then married Rachel, then had relationships with both of their maid servants. He has had so far 11 sons and at least one daughter. He has prospered there in these 25 years. He has amassed a number of animals, sheep, goats, cows, bulls. He, is a wealth. he has amassed wealth and treasures. But he has fallen out with his father-in-law quite severely God told him to go and it suited Jacob's purposes to leave. It's always good when God tells us what we want to do. And he left and fled from Laban. Little did he know the love of his life. Rachel had stolen a household. God, a little idol, and she kept it. Laban and his men chased after him. He has burnt his bridges with Laban. He cannot Go back. He quite literally is between a rock and a hard place. Because when he left his brother 25 years ago, his brother had only one thought. I will kill Jacob. It's not an everyday tale of country folk, this. He has sent messages to his brother saying, I'm coming home. And his brother rides towards him with 400 men. Just to put that in context, when Abraham rescued Lot, he took with him 319 men. These are fighting Men, And this is scary. Verse 7. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were there with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the other that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan but now I have become two groups Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had, With him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 female camels with their young. 40 cows and 10 bulls. And 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants. Each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between each of the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, And he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, Perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Let's pray. Father, would you speak to us as we unpack this passage? May we, like Jacob, see you face to face. May we, like Jacob, be transformed by you. In Jesus' name, Amen. So a lot has happened. 25 years away from his family. Two wives, two concubines, 11 sons, at least one daughter, fallen out with his father-in-law, bridges burnt behind him, anger ahead of him. Not much of a story, really. And here he is. Stepping out because God has told him to go. Now, I like that. Although it suited Jacob, he went. God told him to go and he went. And here is a truth. Whenever we are obedient to God, we don't step into the unknown. We step into God's hands. I say it again and again, the secret of the Christian life, if there is one, is to do what he says. It's as simple as that. Do what he says. And when we do, he takes responsibility for us. We are literally in his hands. When we scheme, when we plan, when we take control, we're in our own hands. Honestly, whose hands would you rather be in? Yours or his? And he steps into God's hands. So the very first verse we see there is And so Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. It's beautiful. It's amazing. I don't understand it, but it seems that, that the scales have fallen away from his eyes and he sees the camp of God. There are military connotations to this. It is the army of God that he sees. It's a bit like Elisha and his servant. And Elisha's servant is scared stiff of the approaching army. And Elisha tells him not to be afraid. And he touches his servant's eyes and he immediately sees the chariots of God, the angels of God, the army of God around him, which is thousand upon thousand. I scarce can take it in. I can hardly understand it. But the truth is today we are surrounded by the army of God and the chariots of God. A thousand upon thousand. I love this because it's unrequested again. We see that a lot in Jacob's life, this unrequested grace. Undeserved, unasked for, and here it is. Jacob is on the run and there God gives him a glimpse of the heavenly army in whose hands he is But I tell you what, you can't take Jacob out of Jacob at the moment. He is still the same old fella, the schemer, the planner. And although he sees the army of God, he is fearful about the future. Although God gives him a gift of seeing, he is scared stiff. And so he sends runners, messengers on ahead of him to tell his brother he's coming home. To prepare the way. And when they come back, Jacob is scared. You see, if we step into God's hands, we're safe. We need not worry. There is peace and there is hope. But when we take matters into our own hands, fear, instability and insecurity are what we can look forward to. And we see that with Jacob. He sends the runners, they come back. Esau's coming and he's got 400 men with him. And he's scared stiff. In great fear and distress, verse 7, Jacob divided the two people. He comes up with a plan. He's a schemer. He comes up with a plan, and it's not a very good plan, you see. This plan to divide the the group into two is actually saying, I will sacrifice half of what I've got, half of everything, so that half may, best case scenario, escape. That's his plan. And then he prays. I would argue that this is the way we do things. We plan, and then we pray. And I would argue that it should be the other way round. We pray, and then we plan. I read uh, F.B. Meyer this week, and he had a, a lovely line. He said this, Our Lord, Jesus, our Lord, never planned, he only did what he saw the Father doing. It's quite beautiful, really. Our Lord never planned. He only did what he saw the Father doing. There's nothing wrong with plans. We need plans. We need a plan often. But I would suggest that prayer comes before planning. And so Jacob Praise to God in fear. And it's interesting, this prayer. Verse 9, he prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, go back. I find that really interesting because he recognises that God is the God of his father Abraham, his grandfather. He recognises that God is the God of his father Isaac. But what he doesn't say is, you're my God. You're mine. What he says is, you are the God who told me to go, and I've gone, and you've got me in trouble. That's basically what he's saying. There is no ownership of this. No ownership of God. You are the God who tells me what to do, And I do my best to do it. You are the God who hopefully blesses me and I hopefully give you a tenth of that. It's a very business orientated, not touching the sides relationship. But God wants more than that from us. We sang it a few minutes ago. The Lord is my. The Lord is my shepherd i am my beloved and he is mine there's a story uh, of between the wars an evangelist going and preaching in scotland uh, and he, his mission really was to the shepherds and the shepherd boys and the crofters up in the highlands And they're preaching to a bunch of little shepherd boys. His theme was, the Lord is my shepherd. And he said, no matter what trouble you find yourself in, no matter what place you are, no matter how hard the circumstances, I want you to know, click it off on your fingers. Mark it off. The Lord is my shepherd. It's that finger, your ring finger. He loves you. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, it was winter and the boys were out and looking after their sheep. And the boys went out and the boys came back. But one of the young lads was missing. He'd been gone all day and by midnight, they thought this is serious. It is cold out there. And so they sent off a search party to find him. Come the morning light, about daybreak, they found a snowdrift with some unusual pattern that indicated there may be someone there. They dug him out, all hands on deck, and there was the little boy, close to death, dying of hypothermia, crunched up, holding on tightly to his ring finger, The Lord is my shepherd. And Jacob misses that. It's transactional, God. You are the God who said, go on, I've gone. But then he says, I am unworthy. He recognizes something of himself and God seems to move. And as he recognizes his unworthiness, he remembers the promise of God. And he says, you promised me that my descendants will outnumber the grains of sand, verse 12. And Jacob stands on a promise. When we pray, God loves to be reminded of his promises to us. Absolutely loves it. Now, when my boys remind me of my promises, it's usually not so good. Uh, And I usually get a little bit annoyed. But you said. uh, And God isn't like that. Praise God. I'm not God. Because God loves it when we turn to him and we say, you have said. So God has said. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Therefore, we can go. We can find grace. We can come on our knees and say, you have promised. It must be so. And Jacob does that here. He says, you've promised me, so I can trust you. He then, act of a desperate man again, seeks to pacify Esau. Whether this has come out of his prayer time, or it's just him scheming, I can't tell you. But he comes up with this plan, so that one after another, after another, after another, after another, each with the promise of Jacob coming next, gifts are given. So that by by the time the bulls have finally got there, his brother is going to be overwhelmed with, with joy at all these gifts. That's his plan. He sends his family across the river and he is alone. Again, desperate act of a desperate man. His final thought is, maybe Esau will be happy with my death alone and my family can continue. And there he is at midnight, all alone. When one of the most perplexing and mysterious verses in the Bible just jumps out at us. It says this, verse 24, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Just as if, you know, as, as always happens, I was left on my own and a man came and wrestled with him. So bizarre. So Out of the blue. So left field. And so Jacob was left alone. And a man came and wrestled with him. Really? Who was this man? Why is this man wrestling with him? Most scholars say we are treading on holy ground here. And shouldn't ask too many questions. Was it real? I'll ask a few. Was it real? Is this figurative? Was was this just a wrestling with his emotions? Or was it real? Well, my suggestion is it's real. The dislocation of his hip, the shriveling of his tendon was real. And my suggestion is that there was a real person that he wrestled with. The next question people often ask is Is it Jesus? I don't know. Is it God? Most definitely. Most definitely. So it would make sense that it is the pre-existent Christ who is coming and wrestling and grappling with this man. I can say most assuredly that it is God. Because Jacob says it's God. He calls the place Peniel. I have seen God face to face. And my life was preserved. Amazing thing. Wrestling from midnight until six-ish. Till daybreak. And only then, only then does the man touch, wrench Jacob's hip. Only then. That's a long time. And even then, Jacob won't let go. You see, something has happened here in this wrestling match. God, his, is on the move. Jacob's injury highlights not only the man's strength, but also Jacob's desire to prevail. Now that's amazing. Remember, Jacob was the weedy one. I'm a smooth man. My brother's a hairy man. I stay at the camp with my mum. My brother goes out and hunts and fishes and cooks and eats raw meat. That's, we've got the homeboy. And he is prevailing. At long last, he's not dodging. At long last, he's not scheming. At long last, he's not being deceitful. But he is facing up and wrestling. He is at last taking a stand. And not only that, Something else, more significant has happened. He says to this man, even after his hip is shriveled, I won't let go until you bless me. Again, if my kids said that to me, I'm not stopping this. Until you bless me, can can I play the Xbox, 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 can I play the Xbox? That would drive me crazy. But again, God loves us to ask. He loves us. His complaints in the prophets were that his people didn't care for the poor, the needy, there was no justice. His other complaint was, you don't ask me to bless you. So Psalm 81 says this, open your mouth and I will fill it. You don't have because you don't ask, James tells us. And when you do ask, it's with wrong motives. But God longs to bless us. Open your mouth and I will fill it, God says. That's a word for us today. Open your mouth and I will fill it. More than that, the end of Psalm 81 says, I bring honey from a rock. How about? I bring honey from a rock. It's God's word to you. Open your mouth, I will fill it. I bring honey from a rock. It's beautiful. And so Jacob is there clinging on. I won't let go till you bless me. This story tells us something amazing about God. And that is that he makes himself Small, so that we can know Him. God, all powerful, all conquering, makes Himself vulnerable so we can get close. That is mind blowing. And so we see the God of the universe wrestling with a man at a brook and not winning even when he severs, shrinks his hip. We see the God of the universe being born in a stable or a cave with a feeding trough as his first cot. We see the God of the universe make himself smaller and grow up in an obscure Galilean village we see the God of the universe become even smaller and choose fishermen as his friends smaller still as he calls those with skin conditions and commercial sex workers as his closest friends smaller still as he goes to Gethsemane and sweats beads of blood Smaller still as he's dragged before the high priest. And the high priest has a vision of heaven. God stands before him and he's not killed. But Jesus refuses to answer the high priest's question and some guard comes and slaps him and says, Don't you know Jesus who you're talking to? He makes himself smaller and is dragged before Pontius Pilate smaller, and he carries a cross on his back, smaller still, and they lay him on the ground and hammer nails into his arms and his legs, smaller still, as they hoist him up, smaller still, and they give him wine-soaked sponge. God becomes small, that we might know him, that we might come near to him Calvin says god speaks to us as a parent speaks to a baby it's called accommodation a baby just needs to know love and goo goo, goo ga, ga ga and god shrinks for if we were to see him as he is were we to know him as he is now we would Die. The marvels, the mysteries of God are so huge, we cannot take them in. In fact, we have an eternity to ponder and look and enjoy the wonder of God. Because it's going to take an eternity to get to know him. But he makes himself small so that we can come near So this story is another sketch. It's another Rembrandt pencil sketch. It's going to be the masterpiece in about 33 AD. But here is the pencil sketch of God who makes himself small in order to bless. Something significant about Jacob here is this wrestling. I had a friend at college. His name was Johnny Stance. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I found the transition from police to theology quite a big one. One minute I'm leading a platoon on the borders of China, the next minute I'm stuck in a classroom learning Greek, Hebrew, and theology. It wasn't easy, uh, and it wasn't easy for me. I was full of pent up energy uh, and had nowhere really to let it out. And one day I was talking about this to some friends, and I said, I just want to fight. In fact, they knew there was a problem because I'd been out and uh, we'd been up to a pub in Crystal Palace, and I'd stood up and I'd said, anybody wants some? And they said, you've got a problem. And I think I did. I did confess it when I first came here, when the elders interviewed me. I said, you know, I'm not your typical Baptist minister. And one of them, Beth Proudlock, said, well, why? And I said, well, I like to fight. And I I did. And uh, proper fight, not fight with words, proper fight. Of course, that excludes me from being an elder because you mustn't be a brawler, it says. So, you know, I keep that under control now. But my mate, Johnny Starnes, was at college with me, and he was huge. In a bygone era, he would have been a blacksmith. As it was, he had been a farmer's boy, uh, and he'd been a butcher's boy, and he was built like an outside toilet. He was huge. And he said, all right, boy, he was 10 years older than me, he said, all right, boy, I'll fight you, like this, and he stood up, you know, like Jaws, in James Bond, and uh, I said, you're on. There were tables everywhere, chairs. We were rolling about for about 20 minutes till we collapsed exhausted. This guy was so fit, he would run from Spurgeons in South London all the way to Portsmouth where he lived. He was fit as anything. And we would wrestle and we would fight. Every Friday was our bout. People would come and watch. They would clear away the tables and there we would go at it, hammer and tongs, pulling noses, punching legs. I can feel his thick Legs still under my fingertips from where I would grab him. I can still see his sweat from his spiky hair dripping in my face. I can still see his teeth as he snarls and taunts as I roll on top of him and then on him on me. I've got many friends from college. One was my best man, Rob. But I don't know any of them like I knew Johnny Starnes. Because I've tasted his sweat. I know where he hurts. And he knows where to hurt me. There's something deeply intimate about wrestling. And that's what happens to Jacob. He wrestles with God. And God turns from being his transactional genie in a lamp to his God. It's beautiful. No longer does he just want to make deals. He wants God's strength with him. He wants God to be his. I love Johnny Starnes and he had a, a big part to play in our wedding. He was due to do our press. And uh, he was going to say grace. In fact, you may have heard me say this before. Fill your boots. That comes from him. That was one of his phrases. Whenever he said grace, that's how he ended it. Amen. Fill your boots. While he was out on a walking holiday in Scotland, climbing Ben Nevis with some other guys from college. He was coming back uh, to Somerset where Joe and I were getting married on the Thursday. We were getting married on the Saturday. And that Thursday morning that they were due to travel back, he got up at six o'clock in the morning, as was his wont, And he went for a jog up the hill. By 11 o'clock he hadn't come back. And so some friends of mine, Bill Leishman, went and tried to find him. They found him not far away, in a bush, on his knees, praying. Dead. He died of a heart attack. But with God... God held him. The challenge of these verses today is this. God says, open your mouth, I will fill it. I don't want part of you, I want all of you. I am yours. You be mine i am yours you be mine an american soldier wrote this prayer i asked god for strength that i might achieve i was made weak that i might learn humbly to obey i asked for health that i might do greater things I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of people. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I, among all people, am most richly blessed. Let's pray. Lord, only one thing is necessary. Only one thing is important. And that is you. So this morning... This afternoon, we say to you simply these words. I am my beloved's and he is mine. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Let's stand and sing our final song this morning.